August. It was the beginning of senior year, and I don't know if I'd look forward to anything more than this. Living in the same dorm as all my friends, the fourth and final year I'd been with Marissa, and it didn't hurt that I got to pick my room because of my leadership position. Last spring, I was elected one of the two co-heads of Nukes. Nukes is short for new girls, which is what we call the incoming students. The other co-head is one of my closest friends, and I hoped of having this position since my freshman year. We spent the previous spring pairing the lovely incoming students with our senior classmates and couldn't wait to see the pairs interacting on campus. I'd also signed up for Capstone, a research course, but it wasn't on my mind at this time. I had a room to decorate, volleyball to try out for, and weekly meetings to get used to before classes got too far along. Campus was warm and my friend's room was stuffy as we danced or made fun of each other in Humphrey. September was similar to August socially, but different academically. Academics, extracurriculars, and sports felt manageable. Despite managing everything, I was still struggling. Struggling to find what topic excited me for my capstone question. When I applied in junior spring, I submitted two questions. My heart was set on the first. I wanted to examine the rise in pharmaceutical prices and their effects on low-income people who relied on them. I know, that's a very different question than what my podcast is about. But I couldn't go through with the first question due to my age and the subject matter I'd be researching. It required a lot more paperwork and legal steps than I was aware of. So here I was, with a question I found interesting, but not interesting enough to spend a whole year studying it. I spent plenty of time in the library trying to find what would pull me in. My classmates were already diving into their research, and I wasn't close to choosing a question I could really love researching. I knew that there was something there. I just had to think hard enough. October. I'd done it. I had the question. Does the rhythm and tempo of music affect the way young adults process new information? Now, I had a lot of ground to cover with my research. I also had a lot of ground to cover with college applications, and college tours, and sports practices, and as a co-head, and with friends, and I finally started to feel the weight of all my responsibilities. I wasn't drowning in my work, far from it, but I was now aware that staying afloat was a lot harder than it looked when I had me time, and there wasn't a lot of it. Listening to music was my outlet. While I was studying, getting ready for game day, or had a few minutes to spare between activities, I had my headphones in or my speaker on. I'd listen to her, my favorite artist, while I was mindlessly playing an online game. Or her new album would be in the background while a friend ranted to me. Everything felt more manageable with music on. November had potential. It really did. The previous weeks had been tough, really tough, but things were looking up in the new month. And then I woke up that first Sunday in November, and I couldn't keep anything down. No food, no liquids, no medicine. I don't want to describe me throwing up any more than you want to hear about it, but this all led to me going to the hospital and finding out that I needed surgery. My gallbladder had died. It had cut off its own blood supply and gave me the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. I was confused. I was stressed. I was anxious and I was scared. 
How could I have prepared for this? How could I have seen this coming? I couldn't have. Who could have? I needed surgery. I had never had surgery before, so I was scared, but it went smoothly. My gallbladder was gone, I had some scars, and all I could do was relax and heal. But it was hard to relax. All my responsibilities were in Farmington, and the semester would grind on without me. My workload would build up while I was gone. I was out for the rest of the volleyball season. I felt useless. All I could do that first week was lay down and not physically exert myself too much. But mentally, I was running all over the place. And I realized after a week that I hadn't listened to anything. Listening to music was a reflex for me, but I felt so overwhelmed, I forgot something so simple, something that brought me peace. So I started listening to music again. And I'm sure it wasn't solely because of the music, but after a few weeks, life slowly got better. I was healing. I was back at school. I had a better understanding of my project because of my own reaction to stress. Getting to this point in my project, the point where you're listening to episode two of my final podcast was a challenge. Though I've had many ups and downs over the course of my senior year, most of my challenges came in the first few months. And those directly affected my project and my ability to make progress. Despite this, I couldn't have gotten to this point without them. I would not have had as much of a personal connection with my project or music therapy without it. After all, because of my experience, my question changed to focus on how music affects your mood and helps with stress and anxiety management. I was my own example of how music had helped soothe a person during stressful times and how it had helped before all of this. I had a new appreciation for music, my project, and by December, I was ready to dive back into research. Hi, I'm Tyler Smith, and that was a bit of context on the first few months of my senior fall. As you heard, my project underwent a lot of change during those months and continued to change into the new year. I learned about music therapy after December. It shared a lot of similarities with what I was researching and led me to working with Steve, Megan, and a few other music therapists. After spending so much time researching that one area, I decided to switch focus going into January. I focused on how music is processed by the brain during my intermission. Intermission at Porter's is a month-long period in January where you get to decide what classes or activities you want to take. Normally, seniors go on internships, but I stayed on campus with other capstone students and focused on research. While researching, I wondered who I could contact to learn more about how music and the brain work. Luckily, I didn't have to look too far. In fact, I found the person I was looking for on the top floor of our library. So I'm Rebecca Plona. I'm the director of the Teaching and Learning Center at Miss Porter School. Along with being the director of the Teaching and Learning Center on campus, Rebecca Plona is a teacher for our advanced psychology and neuroscience courses. She had the expertise that I needed for my project. The brain is an incredible organ. It makes us the people that we all are and reacts to all kinds of stimuli from the outside world. Music elicits a strong reaction from the brain. I'm no neuroscientist, but I know something's happening up there when I listen to music. And thankfully, Rebecca knows a lot on the topic. I wanted Rebecca to walk me through how the brain processes music and the different sensations it feels. 
So when we hear music, we have a couple of processes that it goes through. First, we have the sensation of hearing, and that is processed primarily in the lobes of the brain that are up the temporal lobes that are right above the ears. That sensation that we get then gets translated through some cognitive lenses. So we attach meaning to the music based on previous experiences that we have had with that sort of music. So that's why music can evoke very strong emotions in us. I couldn't help but feel like I'd heard something similar before. I had watched a video a few weeks earlier on Wired's Tech Effects series. It's specifically focused on the relationship between music and the brain. In that episode, Daniel Levitin, a neuroscientist and cognitive psychologist, spoke about the parts of the brain that process music. Listen to his description of all the areas in the brain that music touches. When music enters and then gets shuttled off to different parts of the brain, it stops at specialized processing units in auditory cortex. They track loudness and pitch and rhythm and timbre and things like that. There's visual cortex activation when you're reading music as a musician or watching music. Motor cortex, when you're tapping your feet, snapping your fingers, clapping your hands. The cerebellum, which mediates the emotional responses. The memory system in the hippocampus, hearing a familiar passage finding it somewhere in your memory banks. Music is going on in both halves of the brain, the left and the right, the front and the back, the inside and the outside. Music lights up many regions of the brain and interacts with all of them differently. While songs are pleasing to listen to as a whole, if you break down what's happening in one of your favorite songs, you'll notice the little things that Rebecca and Daniel point out. Let's take Redbone by Childish Gambino, for example. has a beats per minute rate, or BPM, of 160. Liz Copper, the founder of the British Academy of Sound Therapy, says that your heart rate gradually matches the beat of the music you listen to. This process, known as entrainment, typically happens over a five minute period, and luckily, Redbone is five minutes and 20 seconds. This beat starts with the drums in the background. In an interview with Genius, Ludwig Göransson, the composer and producer who worked with Gambino, details the process of making this track. It starts with some strings and a mellotron. Even with so few sounds, you can distinguish the beat and tap your foot to it or bob your head. This is your motor cortex's response. Add in the bass and synth and you really start to hear the song's funk influences. It's a recent song, but it's reminiscent of 70s funk music. Like Daniel said before, the hippocampus, which manages your memory, might perk up if you are familiar with this era of music. Add in the guitar, clavinet, and some bell sounds, and the song is starting to sound more like the full song. Your auditory cortex is looking out for these little details, how loud or soft certain instruments are, the pitch of the song, the rhythm, the groove. Just like Daniel said minutes ago. Lastly, the vocals. Lyrics like,
bring up infidelity in a relationship, and Gambino talks about his paranoia throughout the song. These lyrics have an emotional appeal, and your brain attaches meaning to the words. Even if you're not paying attention to the lyrics, it's a complex, fun song that makes you want to dance. Your brain also processes emotions. When you're happy, sad, or stressed, your brain is affected. According to Harvard Health Publishings, when you're sad, the amygdala, thalamus, and hippocampus are affected. The amygdala is associated with sorrow and anger, among other emotions. The thalamus receives and directs information to carry out functions like thinking and reactions and behavior. And the hippocampus is associated with memory and registering fear. The article even says that, the hippocampus is smaller in some depressed people, and research suggests that ongoing exposure to stress hormones impairs the growth of nerve cells in this part of the brain. As Daniel Levitin mentioned before, music touches the hippocampus along with various other regions in your brain. Some of the same areas in the brain that react when you're sad react to music too. We learned about the emotional connection patients have with music through music therapy in the first episode. It does that through these parts of the brain. Music has been proven to ease anxieties in depressive episodes, ease pain during medical procedures and physical rehabilitation, improving the memory and lives of those with dementia, and so much more. Not only can music do all of that when you're not in a happy or calm state, but it can do just as much when you are happy. Music can also assist us with motivation. So certain beats of music, certain tempos of music, we can find energizing and motivating. Hip hop is often something that people like to listen to when they're working out or exercising because it's got a really upbeat rhythm. Crazy, right? If you're a high school or college athlete, think back to the music you played during warmups or on the bus to a game. If you're an adult, think of songs you play when you want to get moving or to be active. Generally speaking, most people listen to pretty upbeat music to motivate themselves, and there's a reason why. Your heartbeat gradually sinks to the beat of the songs you listen to, according to Liz Cooper. The closer the beat is to 60 beats per minute, the calmer you will feel as your heart rate gradually slows. The closer the beat is to anything over 120 beats per minute, the more energized you'll feel as your heart rate gradually rises. That's why you likely won't find Drake on a study playlist or Beethoven on a game day playlist. According to a study done by Florida National University, there are tangible results that support this idea. Basketball players prone to performing poorly under pressure during games were significantly better during high pressure, free throw shooting if they listened to catchy, upbeat music and lyrics. Now, listening to upbeat music won't turn you into a basketball god in seconds, but it will help you get in the zone. Your heart rate will be elevated, mimicking how it elevates when you work out and you'll be hyped up. You still have to perform and try your best in the game, but it's a quick way to get ready for your game beforehand. And what about calming music and slowing down your heart rate? 
This also has positive beneficial results. The same study also found that Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven can help students categorize information, which is an influential asset to studying. You may assume that calm music is better for you when you're doing things that require you to be relaxed, and science actually backs it up. Studies have been found that students who listen to classical music have higher GPAs than those that listen to typically upbeat music like R&B or rap. But the findings aren't universally conclusive. Other studies have found that listening to upbeat music is very beneficial while studying because it motivates listeners with its high BPM. Isn't it crazy that two contradictory studies support the same goal? Music can help students effectively complete work. They just go about it in different ways. Personal preference in study music or workout music will determine the best experience for you. But don't just stop at calm instrumental music when studying. Nature and environment sounds are study sounds that I highly recommend. I found during my time at home that I am the most focused while reading when listening to rainstorm sounds. There are also YouTube videos of calm, typically quiet environments like libraries and quaint houses by the beach that I find incredibly relaxing. Whether it's the soft sound of pages turning, gentle mumbling in a distant fireplace, or waves crashing and the wind blowing by a window, these sounds cancel out the chaos of my everyday life. Rebecca Plona is also no stranger to the positive benefits of listening to more relaxed music and offered insight into how significant the beats per minute of songs really are. There have been studies about the number of beats per minute of certain types of music being beneficial for inducing kind of a relaxed, alert, aware, receptive state. And so there are some, some researchers who have really looked into the optimal number of beats per minute for background music if you're trying to learn and memorize material. So there's some interesting studies that talk about the beats per minute and how they mirror the brainwaves, whether or not that can be useful in learning and in memory. The beats per minute she's talking about here don't have to do with your heartbeat, though. They affect your brainwaves. Your brain does something similar to your heart while listening to music through something called binaural beats. It is suggested that the frequency of your brain waves can gradually change to match the frequencies of binaural beats in a song. Christopher Lloyd Clark, a composer and producer of music who uses binaural beats to achieve a calm state, says, Binaural beats are a tone created in the brain when it's presented with two different frequencies at the same time. Binaural beats make a wonderful addition to music for meditation and hypnosis because they can actively induce a state of deep relaxation. The state of deep relaxation Chris is referring to is the state your brain is in when it produces more alpha waves. There are five kinds of brain waves and alpha waves are one of them. Alpha waves are your general relaxed state, but we're often not in this state. It's been suggested that an increase in alpha waves increases your concentration, memorization, and can even help reduce depressive symptoms. The frequency that elicits alpha waves is about 8 to 12 hertz. I'd recommend finding a binaural beats video for alpha waves on YouTube and seeing how it makes you feel. But a word of caution, some binaural beats research mentions a potential risk for those with epilepsy. Although the chance of triggering a seizure is considered very rare, just to be safe, those with epilepsy, please consult a doctor first. Rebecca shared how our brain reacts to alpha waves. So alpha waves tend to be the brain waves that we see most often when we are in that relaxed, alert, receptive state, primarily for learning. 
And there have been some studies that have shown that when music matches the beats per minute of the frequency and amplitude of those alpha waves, it can slightly, and I want to specify slightly, enhance your ability to learn and remember new information. You may be thinking after this that it's a no-brainer to start listening to binaural beats or classical music while studying. Though there is nothing wrong with trying this, I want to stress Rebecca's last point. Music can slightly enhance your ability to learn and remember new information. It's not a guarantee of success or a guarantee that it'll make you smarter. But try new things and figure out what best helps you learn. If you've tried listening to music and it doesn't help you focus, that's fine. For some, focusing on work and playing music at the same time is incredibly distracting. If Jay-Z or ASAP Ferg really gets you in the zone while you're doing calculus homework, that's also fine. Music can be universally enjoyed, but it connects with each of us differently. We don't need research to know how music helps us when we are anxious, sad, or stressed. My friends and family have shared that they have playlists they cry to or blast aggressive music when they need to de-stress. Music has the ability to positively impact everyone. Even if you don't like listening to music, there's bound to be a song somewhere that speaks to you and your experiences. That is why music can be so powerful when you're stressed or going through a tough time. Lyrics might hit close to home unexpectedly. A beat might cheer you up. Binaural beats might help you focus when you feel like your brain is cluttered. Music moves our brain, heart, and our body, and I wanted to share how it does this with my community and anyone willing to listen. I've been enjoying two things over quarantine, sharing music and exploring new music. I've made playlists for friends and set goals on random days to send at least a few of my friends a song I think they'd like. I post songs I've been listening to a lot on my Instagram story in hopes that just one other person likes it and jams out for a few minutes. Sharing something I spend a lot of my time listening to with people I care about makes me happy. It's a small way for me to stay connected to people that I likely won't see in person for a while. Listening to new music brings me a different kind of joy. In a matter of minutes, I can expose myself to a new genre or song in a different language. I can listen to artists I've been meaning to get to, but never had time for. Or I can listen to an older album of an artist I like and hear their progression as an artist over the years. Whether sharing or listening, I feel more connected to people through music. I thought being at home for so long that I might lose contact with friends or teachers, but I haven't. And I don't know if it's the music or the messages or the fact that I'm healthy and safe in a city that's been heavily hit by COVID-19, but quarantine feels bearable. It feels bearable as long as I explore new genres or new skills and share the things that matter to me with the people I care about. This was episode two of Music in the Brain. This podcast was written and produced by me, Tyler Smith, for my final capstone project in my AIS capstone class. Songs you heard in this episode were by Umi, Lucky Day, DPR Live, Her, Moses Sumni, Psalm Trees and Moe's Dawa, Childish Gambino, Dow, Fair Game, and Deontay Hitchcock. Editing help by Ali Oshinsky. Special thanks to Eugene Cassidy, all the capstone teachers, my friends who gave me feedback, and my mom. In the next episode, we'll talk about the relationship Porter's faculty and students have with music. 
from the basketball courts to the dining hall tables, I've asked people with various interests what music means to them. To listen to more of Music in the Brain, find my other episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tyler Smith, and this was Music in the Brain. Thanks for listening.